Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. When I pastored in Alabama, there was a nucleus of people in my church that said that they loved getting their toes stepped on. And this evolved into another expression where they came up to me, one of them came up to me one time and and made the comment that they sure got mangled today. And then mangled became the term from that point on. They, in some very weird way, said they looked forward to going to church and getting mangled I don't know that there's any place in Scripture where you get your toes stepped on more than the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know there's any one single place where you get mangled any worse than the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe up until this time, unless you have really dug into this, these three chapters Maybe you've associated with the Sermon on, about, on the Mount just being a nice sermon. There was not a whole lot nice about it. Jesus challenged and confronted people in their beliefs and their practices. And he set the bar high for his disciples. So as we read and study the Sermon on the Mount, we realize that he is also presenting great challenges to us. Challenges so daunting. Sometimes as I am studying and reading this, I wonder if I'll ever add up to what he wants me to be. In the 19th verse, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy. And thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and and money. And there's a portion I have skipped over just <clears throat> temporarily, and I will come back to that. But these two very clearly speak to the issue of money, and Jesus teaches us how he expects us to behave and what our attitude should be concerning money. I have said before in some of my sermons, this is perhaps the most hard-hitting sermon yet. But then I come to this one, 
And I, I wonder if this won't address every single one of us to a certain degree in our attitudes toward not just money, but we can broaden that to possessions. But not just possessions, but we can narrow that down to those possessions which preoccupy us. So I've tipped my hand a little bit on this. The topic, very obviously, is going to address how we feel about those things that we possess, we own. Or the word that Jesus used was treasure. What do you treasure? And I think that zeroes that in just a little bit more than the term possessions. Because I possess a lot of things. I possess a lot of coat hangers. They mean nothing to me. But then there's a few things that I have that they're very precious to me. They're way above coat hangers. There are things in my life that I'm going to be very honest with you. I have ached to own. I've dreamed about it. I've, I've almost been obsessed with owning certain things. More so in my youth. You kind of outgrow that after a while. But I, I recall times in my life when even... When I was a child, and you see something on television, some new toy, and I just, I just wanted that so bad. Usually a cheap little piece of plastic garbage. But you know how that gets a hold of you. Oh, I just want that. And then your neighborhood friends, they get it. You didn't get it. And how disappointed you are. These are all the things we struggle with. If we don't outgrow that, we become adults with the same problem that we had as children, except being adults, it becomes a major problem for us. Now let me set a background for Jesus sharing this passage about money, <clears throat> mammon, possessions, treasures. Jesus was born into this world through a poor family. He grew up in a poor village. He worked as a common laborer and never made huge wages. And he hung out with common people throughout his ministry. He took his message to the poor. He didn't take his message to the rich. He didn't hobnob with them. He was drawn to the common and to the poor. He preached his message to the poor, and message was the message was uh, one of hope. To those who were oppressed, they began to see hope in the words that he delivered. As an adult, Christ owned nothing beyond the basic, bare necessities. He owned his clothing. I don't know what else he owned. He didn't have livestock. He didn't have a house. He didn't have land. He didn't have money. This man lived as simple a life as you can possibly imagine. If he ate, it's because somebody gave him food, unless perhaps he fished and caught some fish. If he slept on a bed, 
in a house, it's because somebody opened that up for him. But not because he owned a house or a bed. I don't think he even carried a knapsack with him. So if he slept outdoors, I doubt that he owned a blanket. Or a mattress, a pad to sleep on, or a pillow. He just merely plopped down on the ground and slept. He owned nothing. If they didn't offer him a place to sleep, he was homeless. And if they didn't offer him something to eat, he went hungry. And those things happened in Christ's life. Because, see, when Jesus approached his disciples and taught them the proper perspective on things, possessions, he spoke as a man that walked the walk instead of just talking the talk. He lived it. He demonstrated it. And he was teaching proper perspective on possessions to his followers who knew that there were certain Jews who were living luxuriously. And there's, there's some flimsy basis for them doing that because if, if you would at some point, and I'm not going to read this chapter to you, but go to Deuteronomy 28 sometime, you'll find that the first 12 verses are promises of great material blessings if you obey the Lord. Now, you finish out the chapter, verses 15 through 54, describe all the curses that will come on you if you don't obey the Lord. So there were Jews that took Deuteronomy chapter 28 in the first verses and said, if we obey the Lord, we can have all these blessings in our life. And to them, they took that passage so far that that became the name it and claim it gospel for them. Like today, do I believe that God can bless me? I do believe that he can. But see, the perversion of that is getting into the, the name it and claim it gospel where somehow you believe that, that God wants you to be rich and fly million-dollar jets. And see, that's the perversion of it. So the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy became perverted by the Jews who went beyond just knowing that God could bless them, and they began to name it and claim it. And Jesus' disciples knew where those Jews lived and knew the lifestyle they lived. And Jesus saying to his disciples, like I've said in so many of these sermons during this series, if you're going to be my disciples, you're not going to be like that. If you're going to be my disciples, you're going to understand that living the life following me is a hardship life. You cannot be consumed with the possession of things if you're going to be my disciple. You have to keep things in perspective. Not only was it necessary for Jesus to address that to his disciples, this is a very pertinent, relevant message for us today. So there's three units in this section on Christian economics. And I'll just summarize them as follows. There's the unit on treasures, the healthy eye, and serving one master. And I passed over the part about the healthy eye. I'll get to that. Each one of these images that Jesus uses, each one of these metaphors, are designed to teach us one overarching truth. And that is, you cannot be possessed by your possessions. 
First of all, treasures. That's that particular word he used that's beyond just what do you own, but what are you serving? Your possessions, like I said, can be everything from soap to batteries to family heirlooms. Your possessions can be very menial, mundane, functional. But your treasures, and this is where you might want to pull your feet in so you don't get your toes stumped. You have been warned. But your treasures might be your family heirloom. Your treasure might be your house or your car. Your treasury might be your jewelry or your bass boat. I don't know what your treasure is. I said it might be. But then Jesus lists two kind of treasures. These are forbidden treasures, and these are the recommended treasures. So treasures are not bad. You just got to know what to treasure. And the forbidden treasures have characteristics. The first characteristic of a forbidden treasure is they are all earthly and temporary. That kind of includes everything down here, doesn't it? He qualifies these things as being located in a place where they are subject to corruption and theft and destruction. And the King James Version uses the word rust. I hate rust. It takes our nice shiny vehicle here in Iowa and it just eats it away. We hate it. And so we can really relate to what Jesus said when he's talking about earthly treasures that easily get corrupted. The second characteristic of earthly treasures is they tend to preoccupy us. When Jesus used the word treasure, he was now focusing on those items that, like I said, sometimes we have longed to possess. We have lived for the day we could own those things. We were thrilled to obtain those things. Those are the things that we would put on the list of, I most would hate to lose this. Those are the things that if there's a fire in your house and you've got to run back in your house and get something, you're going to get your treasure if you can. You're going to get that out of there. You just don't see any possibility of living without your treasure. Our desire for temporary earthly treasures tends to consume us sometimes. And our possession of these treasures enslave us. And our loss of earthly treasures devastate us. I've seen accounts of people who have been survivors of natural disasters. Tornadoes ripping through Tornado Alley. I'm thinking of Joplin, Missouri. I'm thinking of uh, uh, places in Oklahoma and Texas and... Uh, we lived in Alabama where we full of tornadoes down there. I've seen the stories of people as they stand beside the rubble of what was once their home. 
And it's interesting the different perspectives people have on those kind of losses. Uh, Some people are devastated at the loss of their home and they don't know what they're going to do. And other people standing there holding their family and say, we can rebuild, but we have our family. You know, sometimes you have to get to the point to really realize what is your treasure. And sometimes you have to have a wake-up call on what you have been calling your treasure, what you think is most important to us. And my wife and I all the time have to keep reminding ourselves where our true treasures are. Sometimes we tend to worry about what if we do this and what if we lose that. And then we always are boiling it down to, but look what we have. We have our health, we have our family, we have our friends, we have salvation, we have God. And you know, those things are really the treasures, not the things that are at risk of being taken from us, of rotting and corrupting. And as much as we know that, and I'm speaking this and you're not hearing these things for the first time, as much as we know this, we still tend to fall in love with things and get so distracted by our possessions and then Jesus said if you're going to have treasures have the right treasures and the right treasures are characterized by the fact that they are eternal they are secure they cannot be corrupted they cannot be stolen from us see only what is done for Christ is really going to last that's eternal and he is a fool who invests more of his time and more of his resources in earthly things than he does in heavenly treasures. Is the Holy Spirit checking you now? What are you laboring for? And is it eternal or is it temporary? When we stand before God... And we realize how much time, effort, resource we have spent on temporary things. Accumulating things that have zero value on that day. I know we will lament our own foolishness. But here's your opportunity. I'm pleading with you today to change course. I'm pleading with you today to hear the words of God, to make the adjustments in your life so you will not have those regrets when you stand before God. I'm pleading with you, within earshot of my voice, lay up treasures where it really is going to count and forget about those earthly things that tend to consume us. When we stand before God and we see that paltry pile of treasures that we invested in eternity and realize that everything we had worked for got left behind. I know we will feel foolish and we will have nobody to blame but ourselves on that day because nobody made you make those choices but you. 
And so I am absolving myself of all responsibility for your actions because I am putting you on notice this day. You don't know when your life will end. Where are you laying up treasures? Which brings us to the question, how then do I lay up eternal treasures? Let me suggest to you a few that I have come up with. First of all, don't cook the books. Just render to God what belongs to God. One of the most egregious errors we can make in laying up worthless earthly treasures is failing to store up treasures in eternity. We're cooking the books when we're stealing from God for earthly things. We are cooking the books when we take His portion and we bless ourselves. And the fact of the matter is there is simply no excuse for robbing from God. Period. Case settled. Number two. You can lay up eternal treasures by learning to give of your time and your resources cheerfully. I want to share this. This is kind of personal. And I, I, I take the risk. I don't want you to think that this is like last Sunday, toot my own horn. It's so hard sometimes to share these things without... Those of you who have been here from the very beginning when I came here as pastor know my, <clears throat> my famous little 1989 Toyota truck. 240,000 miles on that thing. I was ready to take another 240,000. And it died on my way to church of all things. In the service of the Lord. 5.45 in the morning. It laid down on the side of the road and died. I had to walk the rest of the way. So I had it towed home. Advertised it for sale. And a man who towed it said, My brother would be interested interested in that so his brother came over and looked at it and his brother was struggling he I, I could tell he had financial troubles he's I think a divorce had set him back and child support and alimony and he just I said what do you give me for it he said I don't know what do you want I said I don't know what do you give me for it He said, I'll give you $750. I said, no. I said, you give me 500 it's yours. I'm the world's worst bargainer. I'm horrible. He said, you're kidding me. I said, no. You need it. You need help. He was walking to work. Had no transportation. Give me $500. He said, I don't have the money. He said, I'll have you paid off in two weeks. I said, tell you what. Load the truck up and take it with you. I've got the title. Just load it up and take it with you. He said, 
Bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. It's been three weeks ago. I haven't seen Hyde nor hear of him since. Truck means nothing to me. And this is an opportunity for me to adjust my character, my attitude. What am I going to do? You know, you, you can get a bad attitude about those things, or you can just say it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. It just doesn't make any difference. Learn to give of your time and your resources cheerfully. And I think God has blessed me abundantly. I've got a wonderful church. I've got a wonderful family. And, and uh, we've got steady income. And if this guy needed $500 more than I needed it, who cares? Who cares? You know, you have to get to the point where you are willing to give cheerfully. You've got to keep things in perspective. It's only things. That's all it is. And I reckon that my God can adjust for that in my life somehow. How many of you believe that? He can adjust for it. You don't need to make that adjustment yourself. You just got to learn to live by kingdom ethics instead of living by your own thoughts and, and plans and schemes and and evaluations. Let God take care of you. Number three, you can lay up treasures by reprogramming your heart. Learn to stifle your infatuation with things and train yourself to embrace the eternal treasures as your true source of happiness. I loved that truck. But when it died... It, it was nothing but a pile of metal to me, period. That's it. Who cares? You move on. You've got to adjust your attitude. Like the people who lose their house in a tornado. It's just wood. Just things. You can replace things. And my source of happiness is really not in anything here on earth. My source of happiness has to lie in my eternal treasures. Like the old hymn, I don't know if you ever sang it, I don't know if you ever heard it or not. It says, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. He means more than life to me. And the fairest of 10,000 in my blessed Lord I see. That's what's valuable to me. You can take all my things away from me, but you can't take Jesus away from me. You can't take my salvation away from me. That is an eternal treasure. Number four, you choose your treasures wisely. See, when you choose wisdom instead of mere knowledge, you're choosing treasures. That's something good to have. Knowledge shall cease, the Bible tells us, but the fruits of wisdom will abide forever. How many of you here today, you don't have to raise your hand. You can just nod if you want to. 
Remember those times when you did not make a wise decision. And every time you think about it, it haunts you to this day. Oh, the enemy keeps replaying those things in my life. I want to destroy those tapes. I don't want to think about those stupid things I've done. I want wisdom. Wisdom lasts, and the fruit of wisdom lasts for eternity. Make a choice to be a peacemaker instead of an instigator. That's eternal treasure. Make a choice to love your neighbor and your enemy instead of loving your neighbor and hating your enemy. That's eternal treasures. Choose righteousness instead of choosing to indulge the flesh because that's eternal treasures you're choosing. Choose standing alone for God instead of flowing with the carnal crowd and doing everything that they want to do because that's eternal treasures. You know, Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season and he chose eternal treasures above earthly treasures. Lot was vexed with the filthy conversation of the world instead of learning to talk their talk and he made a choice that was eternal treasures for him. Joseph rejected the illicit advanced life, surrendering his will to God instead of to his own hormones because he was laying up eternal treasures. And Jesus chose to submit to the will of the Father instead of submitting to the temptations of Satan in the wilderness because he was laying up eternal treasures. John Bunyan refused to accept freedom from his prison in exchange for a promise not to preach the gospel. You can be free today, just don't preach anymore. And John Bunyan replied, if you release me from prison today, I will be preaching tomorrow. He made the right choice, laying up eternal treasures. Billy Sunday chose the ministry instead of continuing in a career of professional baseball. Eric Liddell chose to honor God rather than run on Sunday at the Paris Olympics. Martin Luther King received $54,000 as the recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, and he immediately donated it back into the ministry of helping those who were oppressed. The Apostle Paul refused to bargain for his life. But he said, I plead for an opportunity to bring my case before Caesar, knowing it could cost him his life. It did cost him his life. And he penned these final words in saying, I have fought the fight. I have kept the faith. And I finished the course. And there is now laid up for me a crown of righteousness, eternal treasure, because he made the right choice. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not only to me, but to all that love his appearing. And then Peter spoke of that eternal treasure when he said, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. That's eternal treasure. See, these people knew how to lay up eternal treasures where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. The second portion on this is the healthy eye. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And you wonder, how does he go from 
this issue of treasures, where you lay your treasures up, into the issue of having a healthy eye. And then in the next segment, go back to talking about serving master. You cannot serve two masters if you serve, you cannot serve God and mammon. What's this weird break in here about the healthy eye? If you have the King James Version, if your eye is single. But see, single it misses the whole concept. It, really, it means healthy, if you have a healthy eye. And then there's the question that has been tossed back and forth. Are they looking at the eye as one that permits light to enter? Therefore, your body is light. If you have a healthy eye, light can get in. Or are they thinking in terms of the eye uh, like, like the ancient philosophers used to think of it, that the, li- the eye emitted light and it shined on everything it looked at? That's the reason you're able to see, because the light was coming out of your, of your eyes. So that, that would have been part of the context in this day and age, what were they meaning? What was Jesus meaning by talking about the healthy eye? Allowing the light in or putting healthy light out? And all of these things we toss back and forth trying to figure out why does he throw this thing about the healthy eye in here? It seems somewhat out of place with the theme of materialism that surrounds this. But the thought about the healthy eye, I think, means that we make bad choices in evaluating the true value of things when we don't see things clearly. If we have a healthy eye, we can understand truly what eternal treasures are and what corrupt treasures are. We have to be able to understand that or we keep making bad mistakes in our life. See, John tells us in his first epistle, if anyone has material possessions and sees, there's the eye, and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them. How can the love of God be in that person? John addresses people that do not have a healthy eye. They see the need, they don't react, they don't respond, they don't perceive this is something God wants you to do something about. they got a bad eye. There's something wrong with their sight. It's a spiritual eye problem. The evidence is there. They are still blind. And it's interesting that Jesus rebuked the church of Laodicea for claiming they were rich just because they seemed to have a good bank account. Jesus told them that the truth was that they were not only poor, they were blind. He tells them to get some eye salve so they could see the earthly treasure that they were fixed on was corruptible. And it was not making them rich. They needed a healthy eye. This metaphorical way of saying that we're enriched by Christ, but we're not enriched by earthly possessions. We're made truly rich by His blessings and by His approval. And if we're too blind to see that, We're hopelessly bankrupt. I just can't see it. Now, I find it particularly odd that in the perverted gospel, prosperity gospel that we wrestle with today, that the prosperity teachers have the gall, the audacity to equate material blessing with something spiritual, our walk with God, our relationship with Him, How material blessings works into anything spiritual is beyond me, considering the weight of what 
the entire scripture has to say about these things, and especially Jesus saying to my disciples, you cannot be enamored with things and be my follower, my faithful follower. How do these prosperity preachers get away with the garbage that they're putting out? It's beyond me. And the reason I say this is because there are people that are helping them to achieve their carnal goals. They buy into their trickery. Send them $1,000 and expect God to pay you back sevenfold. Send them 100 and expect God to pay you back sevenfold. And we all know how farcical that is. If that works, let them give me $1,000. They can have the 7000 If it truly works, they should be sending out $100 bills to everybody instead of asking for your money. It doesn't work. It's nonsense. Serving one master. Jesus said no one can serve two masters. You will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, God and money. And the most shocking part of this passage is that Christ implies that money is the one thing that has the power to compete with God for the heart of man. We are capable of loving our neighbor without robbing love from God. As a matter of fact, loving our neighbor enhances our love for God. We're capable of loving our enemy without robbing love from God. But you cannot love your money without robbing love from God. You cannot love the things money can buy without robbing love from God. Money is a direct affront to loving God. So much that Christ says it is impossible to love both money and God. To love money is to become a servant of money. And Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Now isn't it curious how money can enslave people? And I'm using money short. Don't, please don't try to parse this and nitpick. I'm talking about the love of money. I'm talking about this lust for money. Isn't it funny how money can enslave us? Isn't it odd, isn't it curious how people will work insane hours for money? How some people who have to work multiple jobs just to make ends meet, there are other people who will work multiple jobs just to have more. Not just to make ends meet, but they want more than they've got. Isn't it curious that in the pursuit of having things, more things, unsatisfied with what we have we want bigger we want more we want better marriages have been totally wrecked in the pursuit of wealth casinos overflow with people willing to throw their hard-earned money away in hopes of hitting the big jackpot i do not understand that that totally escapes my brain i cannot possibly get my brain around that i I'm not going to spend my hard-earned money on chance. The lottery is a multi-million dollar business because everybody is hoping and investing their hard-earned money in a one in 175 million dollar chance that they might win something. I don't get it. 
But that's what money does. It turns the brain into mush. It makes us do the stupidest things. The odds are entirely stacked against us. But because the love and the want of money is so compelling, we do silly things like that. Materialism has the power to enslave. Materialism is a narcotic, and millions of people have become hooked on it. They trash their health. They trash their relationships in pursuit of the almighty dollar. They just want more. And here's the deal. If you make God your master, you absolutely have to make money your servant, not your master. You cannot be possessed by your possessions. Money and possessions must be there only to help you meet your needs, but not to enslave you. You must know how to live with godliness, with contentment to have great gain. You have to be happy with what you have instead of constantly anxious for what you don't have. You have to be able to defeat that constant craving to possess more and better and bigger things. And Christ is trying to impress on us the concept of simplicity in our life. And here's another one where you better pull your feet in. I'm going to do some stomping a little bit. And I'm going to be generous with this. If a $50 pair of shoes, which I don't know that I've ever worn a $50 pair of shoes in my life. But if a $50 pair of shoes will wear just fine, I ask you, why does anybody need a $200 pair of shoes? If I can get $12 blue jeans down at Walmart off the rack, why does any young person need $200 blue jeans that are already torn? I've thrown so many of those things away, didn't know how much they were worth. Why, you know why we do that? Because it's the materialistic thing that we get into. I have to have that. Because other people have it. Because it impresses people. Not because it's functional. Not because it's better. It's because we, our brain has been turned into putty with materialism. There are more than a... Would you pay attention to me, please? There are more than one billion people in the world today who live on less than a dollar a day. There are about 3 billion people, we up that to close to half, 3 billion people who live on less than $2 a day. It's almost half the population of the world makes less in their entire lifetime than the average American welfare recipient makes in a year. We have way more than half the world. We are spoiled with our earthly Riches. We are wasteful. We are self-indulgent. Starving people around the world in famine-stricken lands beg for a clean cup of water that haven't had a filling meal in years. And we buy five designer, five-dollar designer coffees and bottled water and fast food without blinking an eye. We're hooked on things. Most Americans, regardless of economic status, they own a television, they own a telephone, and almost half of all Americans have less than $500 in savings. 64% don't even have a $1,000 nest egg because we spend it just as fast as we earn it because we have to have things. The average American household credit card debt is over $15,000. 
because they have to spend it before they earned it. And more than one-third of all Americans are now delinquent on their debts because they had to have it before they could afford it. Americans are largely in bondage to their pursuit of possessions. And the words that Jesus spoke are more relevant for the 21st century Christians than they were for his own disciples, none of whom had much in the way of any earthly goods anyway. But how can you rebuke people for materialism today when they've been so brainwashed to believe it's their God-given right to pursue happiness? It's in our founding papers. It is your God-given right to pursue happiness. And then they're convinced by Madison Avenue that possessions are the path to happiness. How do you preach to that crowd? Craig Keener summarizes the lessons from these three examples as follows. Number one, he says, if disciples really trust God, they will live as if their treasures in heaven really do matter. Number two, those whose perspective is distorted by materialism are blinded to God's truth. They got an eye problem. That's the reason that Jesus said you have to have a healthy eye. You can't see what materialism is doing to you, how it's destroying you. Number three, he says one either loves God or money. Those who think they can love both are idolaters. Scott McKnight says money has a way of freezing our hands and feet and stiffening our heart. See, here's the bottom line, people. Money wants to be God. Too many men and women are foolishly willing to let that happen in their life, and they worship at the altar of materialism. They spend their lives pursuing their rewards here on earth. I want you to know you expect nothing else when you enter into eternity if you laid up all your treasures down here. Your treasures are going to rot away with your pathetic corpse if that's what you're working for. So I ask you, where's your treasure? Where are you spending more time working for than anything else? Do you know where your heart is? Find your treasure. You're going to find your heart. Because only what's done for Jesus Christ will last. Don't labor for earthly corruptible things. Labor labor for the precious eternal treasures. You'll never regret it. Lay up treasures. Moth and rust do not corrupt. and Thieves do not break and steal. And I can't guarantee you another week here on this earth. Your life could be over before the year is over. Where's your treasures all stored? I hope God gets a hold of us today and we start laying up heavenly treasures and forgetting the earthly treasures. Holy Spirit, speak to us today. Worship team, would you come?